chapter at a time. And last week we looked at chapter number one and looked at the idea of learning how to live. Learning how to live as God would want us to live. And so tonight we're going to look at chapter number two and we're going to look at learning how to love. Learning how to love. We see here, first of all, jumping right into it, because we do have a lot of ground to cover if I'm going to preach an entire chapter in one night, amen? We're going to move quick. Uh, that first of all, if you're going to love like Christ loves and love like we should love, that you are not going to have fluctuating favoritism. Fluctuating favoritism. He says in verse number one, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. He says, hey, you've got faith in God and you, you, you claim this, you declare that you've got faith in God, but you shouldn't have the faith in God and have respect of persons or fluctuating favoritism. This goes from verse 1 down through verse number 13. First of all, you see in verse number 2 the predicament of uh, two men, this example that has given to us. He says there that, for if there came unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and a goodly apparel, and there came also a poor man in vile raiment. He said, there's two guys here. There's a description. You got one man who is obviously uh, wealthy by the way he's attired. Then you have another man who is obviously uh, poor by the way he's attired. Don't give deference to one or the other. He says, it's, it's, there's one guy who's, who's on top of the world and one guy who's under the world, then you know that both of those men are there. But he says, listen, there's a problem that has been evident in the church, and that is the partiality of the membership. He said, listen, there's some of you that look at those men and you think, oh, wait, there's a guy with money. I'm going to go spend some time and talk to him. And then he says, oh, but this guy is poor. This guy is needy. This guy is not going to be able to contribute anything to the church. So I don't know that I will have time for him. Now, the fact of the matter, beloved, it is a problem. You and I both know that it's human nature. It is the sinful nature, the fallen nature of man for us to be given to partiality, for us to have that fluctuating favoritism where we would find and, and desire to be friends with somebody who is wealthy and might have some means and, and maybe high in stature, uh, maybe well recognized. I mean, today we had the police here and those officers were honoring them and recognizing them and there's different statuses or levels of those different officers and we all had the privilege of kind of rubbing shoulders with them for a few minutes what a joy and privilege that is but as you have a dignitary or somebody that comes to church I wonder how many are motivated to try and be sure that they get in with the dignitary but you know what on a weekly basis we've got people that come into this church and I wonder if you're trying to get in with them you know Angelique is pretty faithful to Hunt Valley Baptist Church we miss seeing Harry around here. You know, but he, th these, these kind of people are people that you'd look at and say, well, they don't have a whole lot that they're going to be able to offer or give to the church. <laughs> Harry, he, for some reason, had in his mind that whoever was preaching got his money, whatever gift he was given. And, and so he would, he would say, good job. I got your money today, you know. And uh, he always gave $5. At every service, he would give $5. And listen, that's a pretty good gift compared to how much he had. You know, it's not, a lot of times, uh, the size of our gift really is not compared to the size of the gift. It's, it's compared to the size of what's left. 
And he's pretty sacrificial, giving us $5 for every service. So after Sunday school, you'd tell Pastor Derek, hey, I got your money. I got your $5, you know. And I don't like touching the money. I always tell people, like, give it to an usher or put it in the box. But Harry, he always wanted to hand me his $5. And uh, so I would take it and put it in the box for him. And, and I tried to explain several times that we don't get it. It doesn't go to us specifically. It goes to the church. And, and he's like, What? Come on, come on, you know, he would say. Uh, but I'll tell you what, he was a blessing to our church. And we've got to be careful that we, do, that we don't look for those of means and of value and put some greater importance on them than we do on the ones who can't bring anything into the church. There is a problem here, the partiality of the membership in verses 3 and 4. He says, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. Now, beloved, that's not the kind of clothing that we see people putting on today. That gay means joyful or, or colorful or loud. That kind of clothing that somebody wealthy might wear. And you say unto him, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. And... Are ye not then partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? He's given to us here a very clear example of favoritism in the church. If we're honest tonight, we know that that's our nature. Let me just go on record and say it, and I've said it numerous times, so it's nothing new. But listen, inside of the church, inside of the family of God, there is no room for any type of prejudice. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the example given here of a financial difference between one group or class or another. It doesn't matter if we're talking about an educational difference between one or the other. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the color of a person's skin or the country that they come from. Listen, there's no place for any type of prejudice in the family of God. You know, young people, the kids here, you might think, well, I'm off the hook. This is a message for the adults. We get to relax and put it in neutral for tonight. That's not the case. You know, the fact of the matter is, as young people many times are some of the most partial people there are. You guys have a young person come into the church, a visitor, a guest, somebody come in here. They come into the auditorium and sit down and you walk out. I've seen it. That guest... That 13, 14, 15-year-old is sitting here, and you say, oh, well, I don't know them that good. Listen, you don't have any more excuse to, to uh, try and put it off on your personality than any adult does. You've got a responsibility to go and to meet them and greet them. You say, oh, well, we got to go into the other room. Communicate that. I mean, it just looks pretty rude when, when there's one kid in here and all the other kids leave. I mean, you ought to walk to them and say, hey, we've got practice in the, in the room right over here. We're going to practice a song we've got to sing in a month. Uh, you know, would you like to come and listen? Or would you like to just stay here? We'll be right back. It's just communicating with him, just letting him know. I've seen you guys uh, go outside to play football and leave the guest in here. He doesn't know you. He's not going to come out there and play football. You'd be like, well, he's welcome. Yeah, but you've got to tell him that. You got to go and say, hey, would you like to come out and play football with us? We're going to throw the ball in the parking lot and damage some cars. <laughs> yeah, you're not supposed to be doing that. Stay away from the cars, amen? So, you know, you go tell them and talk to them and communicate. What I'm saying is a lot of times, young people, you don't think about it, but you are partial. You say, I've got my friends and I don't know him. It's the same thing as any adult in here. 
and you have the, the potential to reach those young people that no adult in here can. We could go to that young person and talk to them till we're blue in the face and not impact them at all. But if one of you went and just said hi, he would be like, wow, they talked to me. It makes a big difference. One of the officers that was here this morning told us today that he's planning to come back tonight. Not tonight. He's, he told us today he's planning to come back next week. You know why? Because his middle son said he likes this church and wants to come back. What I'm saying is if some of you young people would really put an effort into welcoming and greeting and bringing in those that come, you, you get those kids to want to be here and they'll drag mom and dad. <laughs> but listen, this is Bible. We're not to be partial. We're not to have uh, favoritism. We're not supposed to have any prejudice. What you really need to do, and this goes for all of us, is just look at and consider what would you want. If I was that person, what would be meaningful to me? What would I enjoy? What, what, how would I want to be treated or communicated with? We see Christ shocks us here when he says in verse number five, he says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. You see, beloved, what we need to do is regardless of who they are, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what our perceived uh, of perception of their capacity or ability is, we need to see them for who they are in Jesus Christ. It's, it's neat here. He says, God hath chosen the poor of this world. See, it doesn't really matter where we're at here in this world. But they're rich in faith. They're rich in faith. He says, why? Because they are heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. Listen tonight, I don't know who the poorest individual is in here, and we're not going to try and compare. There's a lot of people like to compare. They like to be, well, I'm the poorest guy. You know, we like to be a victim today, right? But we're not going to compare who the poorest is. But what I want you to understand, according to the word of God, it doesn't matter what you happen to have in the bank here on earth. You might be poor here on earth, but you are an heir of the king. You are an heir of the child. You are a child of God, an heir of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has promised you all of those things that you get as an heir of the king. You have all of that. And beloved, when somebody comes into the church house, we need to see them not who they are in this world, but who they are positionally in Jesus Christ. And that is a child of, an, of the king. Listen, if, if one of, uh, and I hate using people's names because everybody's so political today, but I'm saying, let's say if the son of some wealthy individual, whoever you want to talk about, happened to come into church today, people would be, oh, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to greet him. I'm going to welcome him. Why? Because obviously he's got some means, some capacity, some wealth. He is the son of, well, listen, we're the son, the child of God. 
we're heirs to the throne of God. And sometimes people in this world, I've had conversations with people that they, they don't think a lot of themselves. Personally, they, they uh, are really discouraged and disheartened and, and they look at their own self and, and they feel they don't have a lot of self-worth. And I've communicated to them and I've said, listen, none of us are worthy here on earth. None of us are anything. The Bible tells us you shouldn't be thinking anything of yourself. What hast thou that thou hast not received? None of us are worthy, but beloved, I, I, I've talked to him and I said, think about who you are in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. In Jesus Christ, you have positionally, you have everything that anybody else in here has. Positionally, you have every promise that I have. You have every uh, ounce of grace that I have. You have every bit of the love of God that I have. Positionally, we are there, and that's how we should view people. Positionally in Christ, not in this world. That means we're going to see past their personalities. That means we're going to see past their position in this world and how they might be dressed. Beloved, if we're going to love like Christ's love, we're going to respond with the love of Christ. In verses 6 and 7, he describes what I've listed as the persecution of the church. But really, he's just talking about how foolish it is to, to give deference to a rich man. He says, but ye have despised the poor. Did not rich men oppress you? You know, rich people just have too much time on their hands. <laughs> that's, the, that's the situation. You know, society was a whole lot better off when everybody had to work like a dog just to survive. Then they didn't have so much time to worry about what their neighbor was doing. They were doing what they had to do just to put food on the table and live. But now they've got so much money in the bank, it doesn't matter. They can take up as much time as they want and tie up a church that wants to build for eight years in court. They just got too much time. This is what he says. He said, didn't the rich oppress you? Why are you giving deference to those guys? He says, aren't they the ones that gave you a hard time? He says, and they draw you before the judgment seat. I mean, that's what happened to us, literally, as a church. The rich did that to us. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? He says, man, you, you despised or shamed the poor. Weren't the rich ones the one that caused you problems? Why in the world would you give partiality towards them? Then we have the presentation of the mandate, verses 8 through 11. He says, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. He says, congratulations, you've done good, you fulfilled the law. He says, but if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as a transgressor. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Beloved favoritism breaks God's law. Galatians 5, verse number 14 says, 
For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love the Lord, love thy neighbor as thyself. All the law is fulfilled in this one word, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, if we just kept that law, we'd have a lot less problems in the church. You know what? Let's, let's take it out of the realm of church. If we, just, if we just did that, we would have a lot less problems in our homes. In our homes. What I'm saying is, sir, is if you literally loved her like you love yourself, you would have a lot better relationship. Because you wouldn't ever want to do anything that would dis- disappoint or discourage her because you love her like you love yourself. Man, if you loved him like you love yourself, you would have a lot better relationship. Kids, if you love mom and dad like you love yourself, you'd never want to do anything to disappoint them. You'd never want to disobey them. You would never want to defy their their orders. You would never want to do anything that would discourage mom and dad. Why? Because you love them too much. I'm saying if all we did was fulfill that one law, and we'd have a lot better relationships. The problem is, beloved, I mean, you know, we use this illustration out soul winning. We say, uh, we're, we're kind of, we're setting them up. You know, we say, hey, how many, how many things do I have to steal to be a thief? And he's like, oh, just one. Yeah, just steal one thing. How many lies do I have to tell to be a liar? Just one. So how many sins do I have to commit to be a sinner? Oh, yeah, just one. So you're a sinner, right? Yeah, you know, when people, we've had them say, well, no, I'm not a sinner, you know. But, you know, the, the idea that, how many, he says here very clearly, if you've transgressed the law in one point, you're a transgressor of the law. That's the fact of the matter here. But, beloved, the problem lies in that we believe in our hearts that we are somehow more righteous than other people because we have transgressed the law less than they have. But God says if you've transgressed the law, you are a transgressor of the law. If If you've broken it at one point, you've broken it at all. As I pondered and thought about this, what he's saying is if I don't love my brother... I'm as guilty as the worst hell-bound sinner out there. Maybe that's why Jeremiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Because he was struck with the reality of really how much we break the law. Favoritism, beloved, is overcome by love. Romans 12, verse 9 says, But love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. Love, empowered by God, overcomes favoritism. Verses 12 through 13, he talks about the provocation of mercy. He says, hey, one day we're going to stand before the judge. And when you stand before the judge, don't you want him to have some mercy on you? Wouldn't that be nice? Then it might behoove you in your current circumstance to have some mercy on others. 
If you think that one day you're going to be there and you might enjoy having some mercy, it might be something good for you to do. Then we see in verses 14 through 26 a fruitful faith. Fruitful faith. I'm going to read this passage together and we may reference back to these verses, but trying to move. Verses 14 through 26, he says, What does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he had offered Isaac upon uh, his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise, also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers? And sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So we have here a conundrum. We have here a problem. First of all, the description of profitless faith. Profitless faith. Using the example that really just kind of continues the context of showing our love for other people. He says, listen, if somebody comes to you with a need and you look and listen to the need and you say, man, God bless you. Boy, go, be warm, be filled. But you don't do anything to meet the need. He says, that, that, that's pretty meaningless. He said, there's a whole lot of words there and, and not a lot of work there. He says, your, your talk is, chim- is charming, but your walk is cheap. He says, your talk there, uh, it it says a whole lot, but your walk is not accomplishing anything. That's why he said, faith without works is dead. You may talk about all of your faith, but faith that is not on display in works is dead. It has no heart. It has no life. You know your walk talks louder than your talk talks. We're dealing with and talking about the practical lessons from James. James how to live, and learning how to love. And beloved, just announcing to this world that you're a Christian is not. What does it? Just putting a, a uh, fish on your car or, or a bumper sticker that says you love God, if you love Jesus, honk. You know, I mean, you want to have a bumper sticker that says that that's fine. But that doesn't do anything. See, so you have the conundrum here the, 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 that's introduced the battle, the conflict between justification by faith or works. Some would think they finally found a 
conflict. You know, a contradiction in scriptures, you know, the critic, he wants to find a contradiction. And he says, aha, I finally found one. I mean, we read it this morning. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you say through faith and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul, that great theologian, he says, it's uh, not of works, it's by faith alone. For by grace you say through faith. You believe that? Say amen. 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 We believe it. But then James here says, wait a minute. Can faith save him? Faith without works is dead. And especially when he gets into the example of Abraham, many people would look at this and try and use it as a uh, means to say, hey, you've got to have some works. And we, of course, know, beloved, that we're saved by grace and faith in Christ alone. Jesus Christ plus nothing and minus nothing. It's all in him and nothing we can do. But why then does James show us or say this, what looks to be like a contradiction? The difference, beloved, is the point of view. Paul is dealing with this from a position of man trying to come to a saving faith. He's looking at it from the point of view of Christ, of God. And by God's point of view, looking at it from God's point of view, man is justified by faith and faith alone. But how many of you know, and we like to say it, uh, usually in the wrong context, but we like to say it that, well, God looks on the heart. Man looks where? On the outward appearance. That's the difference. James is saying, okay, from God's point of view, you're justified by faith. But from man's point of view that are looking at you, because they can't see your heart. From man's point of view, you're justified by works. He's saying, your talk is cheap if you don't have a walk that backs it up. You can say you love Jesus, but if it doesn't change the way you live and the way you interact and the way you love people, then your faith is dead. James is telling men who are already saved how to show their faith to other men. Beloved, if somebody ran into this room tonight and said, the building's on fire, the building's on fire, quick, run! And all of us just kept talking and fellowshipping and just completely ignored him. You see, there was no faith in what they said. You know, if Titus ran in here tonight and said, the building's on fire! You know, we would think he was playing some kind of game, right? None of us would move. Now, if Joe came in here and said, the building's on fire, let's go, quick, everybody out! You see, faith results in action. When you believe, when you have faith, it results in action. We're talking about the difference between prof profession and practice. You see, Paul believed the same things that James did. You know that verse that we quoted, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that probably 95% of you could quote, maybe, maybe all of you. But you know what verse number 10 says? Can I read it to you? 
He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So in that great passage that we use and, and rightfully so establish that we are saved by faith in Christ, by, by grace alone, we know that. The very next verse says, but we are saved unto good works. Amen. You see, true life-giving faith will always result in life-giving service. That's when you will take your life and gladly give it in service to the one who saved you. What I'm saying is there's going to be a whole lot of practicing to back up your preaching. Because you have life-giving faith. Faith always equals walk through. Faith will always equal follow through. You know, you've heard the saying, well, it waddles like a duck. Quacks like a duck. Smells like a duck. Must be a duck, right? Well, I'm sorry, friend. You can't walk like the world, talk like the devil, live like Satan, and say, must be a Christian. It just doesn't work. He talks about fruitful faith. Saving faith, beloved, is serving faith. Saving faith is seeking faith. Saving faith is sacrificing faith. Saving faith is surrendered faith. Saving faith is stirring faith. Saving faith is securing faith. Saving faith is successful faith. You will have fruit in your life because of the faith that was born in your heart. Beloved, you know it. When you plant corn, you get what? Corn. Come on, you guys. I know we're... Got one more point. Okay, if you plant beans, you get... All right, amen. And listen, when you plant faith in the heart of a believer, you get a Christian. You get faith. You get that in response. You don't get something else. When faith is born, true faith is born in the heart, you get fruitfulness born from God himself. Somebody said there's really no conflict between faith and works. In the Christian life, they go together like inhaling and exhaling. Faith is taking the gospel in and works is taking the gospel out. You really can't have one without the other. And lastly tonight, I want you to see a faithful friend. We're going to back up to verse number 23. I love this, this verse and this description of Abraham he says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. What a privilege to be called the friend of God. Um, you know what? He wasn't called the friend of God by others. He was called the friend of God by God. Some of you here tonight may say, well, yeah, I've got, I'm a friend to, you know, people in the church. You may, in your heart or mind, you may say, well, I'm a friend to everybody in the church. But I wonder how many people in the church would say you are their friend. You see, I've said it before. You want to find out if you're a good husband? Of course I'm a good husband. I know that. But you want to find out if you're a good husband? Ask your wife, right? You want to find out if you're, if you're a, a, 
good wife, if you, you are, you know, would meet that, listen, you don't have to ask anybody else. I know in your heart and mind, you are all that in a bag of chips. Amen. <laughs> Trying to be nice. <laughs> but you need to ask your, ask your mate. So I wonder if you asked somebody else, hey, do you count me a friend? Do you really think I'm your friend? What would they say? See, in our heart, in our mind, we may say, well, yeah, I'm their friend. But if a man wants friends, he's got to show himself friendly. And it's kind of the idea of, hey, be warmed, be filled. It's, it's kind of like an empty gesture if there's not some works to back it up. If there's not something there that illustrates that and carries it through into practical life, then people will say, well, I, I, suppose, I mean, he's not really my enemy, but I don't know that he's my friend. I mean, we don't ever talk. <laughs> You know, he's never been to my house. He's never invited me over. We've never gone to dinner together. We've never, you know, shared anything. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we go to church together, but is there more than that? Most importantly, beloved, we ought to be a friend of God, but I just want to apply this to ourselves. I wonder if we just look at the Bible briefly and we'll be done. We're talking about learning to love, so I wonder about this idea of being a friend. And if we were a friend of God, what kind of a person would we be to him and maybe to others? Well, there's a couple things I found in the Bible. First of all, we know that a friend loveth at all times. That's in Proverbs 17, 17. He said, a friend loveth at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You know, there's some people that are fair weather friends. They're, they're around as long as things are going well. They're there when... Things are fine and the sun is shining, but when the going gets tough, they're nowhere around. So there's some fair weather friends. But a true friend loveth at all times. We know that if we're going to love like Christ, that we're going to love at all times. We know that there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And we love to talk about Christ that way for us. But are we that kind of friend? For others, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You know, beloved, you don't really have the opportunity to be a friend until the going gets tough. The rest is just fellowship and fun. But when the going gets tough, that's when you can show whether you're a friend or not. That's the truth of it. A friend I see is loyal. He's loyal. You know, the Bible tells us in James 4, For ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You see, a friend is loyal. I think Abraham, if he was going to be called the friend of God, that he... He had to be friend of God, loyal all the time. Not, not friends with the world and then catching up with God on the weekends. He had to be a friend to God all the time. If we're going to be that kind of friend for one another, we need to be loyal to one another. We could chase some rabbits and, and talk about a lot of practical application here. 
But I think you know what it is. Disloyalty. You need to be loyal to one another. Listen, I'm just going to say it publicly here because sometimes I'm put in a really awkward position with some of you. Because you come to me and you talk to me about another member of the family of God. That puts me in a really bad place. Because let me ask you, if somebody came to me and was talking about you, would you want me to stand up for you? Would you want me to have your back? You'd say, well, Pastor Caleb, that's loyal. I'm, I'm bringing this up because I was convicted in my heart just recently. Because somebody said something careless, not, not mean, just... It was derogatory about another member of the church in my presence, and I didn't speak up. I didn't say something. I didn't correct this individual because it's awkward, because it's hard to look at them and say, listen, I don't want you to talk about my friend like that. But that's what loyalty does. And so what I'm, I'm saying to you as a church By God's grace and with his strength, I want to have your back. I know every one of you are in different places and you have different struggles and nobody in here is perfect. And I want to love you where you're at and help you get from where you're at to where God wants you to be. But I want to ask you to help me by not putting me in that position where I've got to correct you in a group with other people because you talked bad about another member of the family. That being said from me to you, could I encourage you as a church family to do the same for each other? Do the same for each other. A friend is loyal, not just loyal when Lee happens to be standing there, but loyal all the time. You'll save yourself a lot of heartache if you just do it. And here's the thing. I was caught off guard. And I walked away from that meal. And I just, in my heart and mind, I was smote. And I said, man, I messed up. I I did wrong. And what I'm saying is you have to prepare in your mind how you're going to handle that ahead of time. You have to establish it in your heart and mind. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut it off at the pass. I'm going to say, listen, I love you, but I love them too. And I I don't want to hear anything negative about another brother or sister in Christ. You have to have it established in your heart and mind because if you don't, it'll be there and gone and it'll be passed and, and you won't have said anything. So let's be loyal, loyal friends, loyal to one another. We see in the scriptures, the last thing I see here is a friend lays down his life. Greater love hath no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friend. He said, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. You want to be the friend of God? He said, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I call ye not servants, for the servant knoweth not what the Lord doeth, but I have called you friends For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. 
What a privilege to be the friend of God. Currently in our family devotions, we're reading a book entitled Climbing, The Memories of a Missionary's Wife. Serving on the mission field in China, this, you guys know the Goforth family, Mrs. Goforth had just gotten to the field and she desired to be the greatest missionary she could. In the book, she describes her desire to please and honor her husband, but more importantly, to please and honor her heavenly father. And having just arrived to the field, she went to Mrs. S., one of the missionaries that had been there for a number of years and serving faithfully and accomplishing a great work. And she said, Mrs. S., could you please talk to me about how to reach the women of China? Could you help me have a fulfilling and and meaningful ministry to these ladies? And she said, Mrs. Goldforth, would you come and sit with me and I'll share with you something that happened today that'll help you. She said, I went to a distant village in the hopes of having a Bible study with a group of ladies. We typically meet in one house, and I went to the home where we have a Bible study, but there had been a lot of rain. It was raining, and no other people came to the Bible study. It was just the one lady there all by herself. And I thought, well, I'll I'll have Bible study with this one. And we sat on the bed, and I put my arm around her, and we began to read the Scripture together. And as we read, tears began to fall down this lady's face. And she said, Mrs. S., could we please not read Scripture today? Could, could you please just let me talk to you about my life? She said, Mrs. S., my sister died a few weeks ago. And I've had the burden of caring for her children as well as my own. With the added work and responsibility, I've had to do my work late into the night. I have uh, fabric I have to weave, and and I'm constantly and continually doing that, trying to meet the needs and trying to care for the home and and to feed the kids every single day. And and all of this is on my shoulders. And she said, Mrs. S., I've been so busy. I have not had opportunity to take care of the lice in my home. Even the bed we're sitting on right now is infested with lice. Mrs. Goforth stood up and said, Oh my goodness, did, did, did you immediately stand up and get out of there? And she said, I wanted to. But in my heart, I heard Christ say, The love of Christ constraineth us, and faith without works is dead. And she said, Mrs. Goforth, I reached And I drew her closer to me because what she needed is somebody to love her. Mrs. Goforth talks about that evening in her own devotions, how she knelt and prayed and begged God for the kind of heart that would love people that way. To have faith without works is dead. Learning to love in chapter 2. James.